This is Conversations on the Arts. I'm Yuri Krieger. I am delighted to have as my guest today Derek Bosher. His current show, Paris, France, Paris, Texas, Paris Hilton, is at Flowers Gallery in New York City. Derek Bosher first came to prominence with his paintings as a student at the Royal College of Art in London in the early 1960s with fellow students David Hockney, Alan Jones, Arbit Katai, and others in the British pop art movement. Subsequently, he used other media, drawing, printmaking, film books, three-dimensional objects, installations, and photography among them. His graphic work with popular music groups such as The Clash and with David Bowie have brought his work to a wider audience. Thank you so much, Derek, for doing this interview. Welcome. It looks like you're having like a lot of exhibitions right now. You know, you're being almost rediscovered. You had a show at the Thomas Solomon Gallery of your work from 1962. You're included in the Victoria and Albert uh, show on David Bowie. You had a show in London. Um, the show in London was at the Chelsea Arts Club. It was work that I did in '04, all about the Iraq War. Isn't there a show also of, called David Bowie and the Clash at Palant House? And that was actually last June. Um, yeah, Palant House is a museum in the south of uh, England. And I did a show there called um, Derek Bosher, David Bowie and the Clash, which was all the work that I've done over the years with both Bowie and the Clash. I just wanted to mention that you have come out of the British art movement, but you do currently live in Los Angeles. For how long? I've lived in Los Angeles now for over 14 years. So let's start with the show at the Flowers Gallery. Why did you decide to call the show Paris, France, Paris, Texas, Paris Hilton? Well, what happened was I knew that um, about the same time that I was going to do the New York show, I would be having a show in Paris with my gallery there. And what is your gallery there? A gallery there is called Galerie de Centre, so the central gallery. It's right by the Pompidou Centre. The exhibition is actually still on in Paris and will be on until mid-May. I think it's been extended. And what is so, this, what is in that show? What, what is the title of that show? And the title of that show is the same title as the show in New York. I did this whole body of work, um, as you say, titled Paris, France, Paris, Texas, Paris, Hilton. The reason that came about, as I said, I was about to... Um, I knew I was going to show in Paris, and, and therefore I knew I'd be in Paris... Um, in uh, March and then one or, one or two things I wanted to do I wanted to go to Delacroix studio um, there was one or two other things I needed to do so I just simply googled, googled um, Paris and instead of getting a, a 2000 year old city the first Paris that came up was Paris Hilton yes and I thought this is ridiculous plus the other factor was the fact that I used to live um, for 13 years in Texas in Houston, Texas, and I had always promised myself when I lived there that I would someday drive to Paris, Texas, um, which I found on the map, and take some photographs and maybe do a project called Paris, Texas. I never did get to it. That was how that title basically came into being. I wanted to go back a little bit to the beginning when you were a student at the Royal College in Britain. And you're a part of this group. Can you talk a little bit about that? What was that like being a part of this, you know, the first generation of British pop artists? Well, I think it's kind of like um, a thing that happens a lot in the history of art and generally, which is we sort of happen to be at the right place at the right time. 
and a group of us. We all came out of quite academic backgrounds. We were in art college in the 50s, and we were taught very traditionally. For instance, we were in the life drawing room every single day, Monday to Friday. And I remember at the art college that I went to, you had to be in the art, uh, life drawing room, but you were not allowed to paint. You were only allowed to draw. And you were only allowed to paint a year later in your second year after you had passed an exam in which you had to name every bone in the body and one-third of the muscles. So this background of academic training, I think, contributed to, to change when we all left. And by the way, most of the people that were in that group that you mentioned were also working class people, you know, blue collar. Yes. So that made, that was yet another difference. I mean, it's, it's also very complex. There was also lots of shifting at the time going on. Britain had come out of the very dull 50s. The war, Second World War, had ended in 40, 45. Right. And here we are 12, 15 years later, um, you know, still, you know, Britain was very depressed. Yes. So I think as, as, as a group of artists, we sort of started to look at the things that we were, you know, beginning to paint because we were beginning a new, as it were, a new section of our life. We were graduate students. And we decided that what we were painting before, what we'd been taught to paint, was not what we were interested in. We were interested in alcohol, drugs, girls, music, graphics, you know, and, and the, 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 the culture that surrounded us. Exactly. You know? And so we, that's basically, and with the simplest answer that came about, we, we, paint, we painted the things that interested us. Do you think the difference a little bit, the difference between, let's say, the American pop artists of the period and your work as a group, was your work had more of a political point of view to it? Yes, I think that, that was one, one, one aspect that you, you, you could talk about the difference between British and American. The other thing, of course, is what America brought to all um, painting, what, what America brought to abstract expressionism, which was scale, scale of the country, the, the, the scale of America. I mean, if we, if you look at very early abstract art, you know, abstract art basically was, was Russian, basically. I mean, abstract art, you know, the constructivist basically Everything was very intimate. I mean, you went up to it. The pieces were small. Right. Um, I, I think Malevich did one sort of six foot by six foot painting, but that was very unusual. So what America brought to um, express, uh, abstract art was, A, what they borrowed from German Expressionism, plus the scale of America. And two, that is also true, I think, of um, American pop art. I mean, it's on a huge scale. Yes. British pop is a far more intimate thing. You went into being involved with what you would call pop. I mean, can you tell, talk about a little bit your journey of being interested in pop, but then being involved with The Clash? Um, I mean, that, because that aesthetic was a little bit different. Well, my involvement um, with, with popular music culture was a way of getting my art out into a wider um Horizons, basically, you know, it's not just the art world. I mean, with the, with the music world, you reach a totally different audience and much more involved in popular culture. Um, my involvement with uh, The Clash was um, the story I've told many times, which is that 
Joe Strummer, the lead singer of the Clash, was a student of mine. Yes. And when he um, he used to sit in my class in his very first year at art school, he must have then been 17, maybe 18, but um, he was in, in my class and he used to sit in the corner playing a wooden guitar, singing Bob Dylan songs. He used to play Blowing in the Wind yeah. and um, things like that. And... Um, it wasn't until about five years later when he became famous. He was he um, when he was at college in his first year. He everyone he asked everyone to call him Woody. Hey man, call me Woody. Hey, and <laughs> and that was because like Bob Dylan, right? They were he did both, the same thing exactly. Woody Guthrie. They were both they were both uh, influenced and uh, by an American folk singer, Woody Guthrie. So about six years or so, I don't know how much later it was, I was walking down a street in, in London in the evening, actually, and who should be coming towards me but Woody, except he wasn't Woody anymore because he had he was all dressed in black and he had his black Doc Martin boots on and there were some screaming fans with him and Paul Simon and his bass player was with him. So when I saw him, I went up to him and said, hi, Woody, and he said, I'm not called Woody now and I said well, I know Joe I, that was just a joke I'm a, I'm a great fan of the clash I know all your work and so forth well and we had a conversation I remember we were just by a shoe shop I remember and um, well about less than a week later I had another a call from another ex-student called Caroline Kuhn and she said, oh, you met Joe? And I said, Joe, Joe Stummer, yeah, of course. He said, I see. He said, well, I've been talking to him, and he wants to know if you'd like to work with him and design their second songbook. Well, just to put that songbook into context, MTV didn't come into existence until 1981. Now, this was 1979. And at that time, before music videos, what pop music groups did was publish songbooks. Yes. That is, they did their lyrics and their um, and their you know musical notes and stuff, and masses of photographs. It was like a fan magazine basically, and that in turn I think came out of that turn of the century, vaudeville and music hall when you bought a penny sheet. You know you had your favorite, you know turn of the century, um, you know musical vaudeville star have the, their photograph on the cover. And there's just two pages inside with their music. So I think that sort of grew out of that. How did you approach doing that song book for them? Was the aesthetic of oh, the design? Well, that was, it was amazing, really, because in this conversation with Caroline Kuhn, by the way, I said to Caroline Kuhn, what are you to do with the Clash? And she said, I'm their manager. So I said, well, what, what does this entail, this song book? And she said, well, Joe said, it's 48 pages. And I said, yeah, but what's my brief? And Joe, and she said, well, Joe said he'll send you all the lyrics and just do what you like. So I had the perfect brief, basically. You know, I did know all the songs. You know, I listened to them again. I worked out the images and just went from there. I mean, it was, it, I was so lucky to have that sort of brief, really. But when you think Which about is, it, um, you were partly involved with creating the aesthetic for this group. Um, I, you know, I was interested in punk at the time. In fact, in that same year, in 1979, I had curated a show at the Haywood Gallery in London. I think every four years, the Arts Council of Britain 
used to ask an artist, not a curator, not a historian, to be a curator for a show. Well, I did a show called Lives, and it was subtitled Artists Who Use Other People as the Subject Matter of Their Art. Therefore, there was no landscape art, no abstract art, no art where performance art, artists used themselves. In 79, when I curated this show, and I, I actually, although the show went out in 79, I was curated it in 78, I included a whole section on punk. Um, that was, um, so these the artists, um, in addition to who you went to school with, the Kitai and Hawking, and, were you like friends? Did you hang out? Did you uh, have a, you know, go, go to, you know, was there a scene that you were a part of? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we always used to go to a lot of similar places. We also had different lives, you know, but yes, we, you know, well, we were, we were pushed together because we used to see each other practically every day because we were still at college when we were making those pop paintings. I see. In our last year, 62, you see. That was that particular year that we were talking about was 1915. It was a three-year, the graduate course was a three, at the Royal College of Art was a three-year course. And that was from 59 to 62. So now I noticed that you've just recently had a show at the Thomas Solomon Gallery. Which Thomas called, Solomon Gallery in, in, in Los, Los Angeles, Angeles yeah. called 1962. So can you tell us what was in that show? The show's title is simple. It was called Derek Bosher 1962. So I did, um, the show consisted of one painting from 1962. Can you describe that painting? Yeah, and the painting is called Swan. And it's called Swan because Swan was the name of a, a product, which was a matchbox, which at, in the 60s was certainly a favorite matchbox cover design by visual artists. It was a beautiful design. It was a swan, and it was in green and red. I mean, I, re I remember at the time we were interested in, you know, products at that time. I, mean, I remember, apart from the Swan Vesta, it was called Swan Vesta Matches, um, you know, striking matches for cigarettes. And there was, we were also interested in the design of Gouloise, the, the, um, the French cigarette pack, that beautiful blue pack. Um, disappeared now, I think. Um, designed by a man called Ponty. But so we were interested in um, advertisements, all the things that surrounded us, you know, the things that influenced our life. You know, maybe it wasn't a Rembrandt reproduction. It might have been a cigarette ad or certainly a music ad and things like that, which we were all working off of. So this particular painting called Swan is um, a painting in which this matchbox, a brightly colored matchbox, actually morphs into an abstract painting, basically. But in the exhibition also were 10 drawings, and which were sort of re related to work at the time. As I say, it was just work from one year, actually. So. What, while you were still in school? Uh, well, the last year at college, yes. What, are the, what do you think are the similarities and the changes between the work that you were showing then in 1962 and the work that you're showing now at Flowers Gallery and at the Gallery in Paris? Well, I think there's a sort of link. Actually, what's happening at the very moment is someone, a group of people are, are working on a, um, a biograph, uh, a, a book which will come out in about a year's time, I think. 
and um, that's one of the one of the things that's happening in that book is the tying together of all these things. I mean, basically, I've always been interested in popular culture, basically, and that's the link between it all. If I'm making films or installations, and going back, of course, to working with David Bowie, if you'd like me to talk about that. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I could tell you about that. What happened there was... Um, the story there is, and actually goes back to the exhibition that I've curated called Lives that I mentioned at the Hayward Gallery. There was a very, very nice catalogue for that. Uh, there were 24 artists in the show, I think, and they came from all sorts of disciplines. In fact, I was trying to break down the high, 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 low, high, high art, low art, um, um, combo, the idea of, you know, the things that they included in the art world were important, but so were all the things that surrounded us in popular culture. And because of that, I, I had such a variety of artists. I had very well-known artists within the art world, like David Hockney, but I also included um, a stamp designer, someone who had just designed one of the, one of the British stamps. It was a beautiful stamp. It was um, a bicyclist. When I went to see him, he said, oh, I'm not an artist, I can't. I said, what do you mean you're not an artist? I said, your work, your image of this bicyclist on the stamp will be seen by a million times more people than all of the artists in the show. There was also, I included someone, um, a lot of uh, documentary uh, photographers, and I included someone called Duffy, and he was a fashion photographer. He'd worked for Perry Match. But he also was a big advertising photographer. And about two or three months after the show finished at the Hayward Gallery in uh, in '79, uh, uh, a phone call from him, and he said, "Oh, this is Duffy here. You know, Derek, um, I, I've got this friend. I really, I know this friend quite well, and I know you. And he said, I'm sure you're going to get on. Well, I, I'd like to introduce you. So anyway." He said, come to my studio. So I went to Duffy's studio, and it was David Bowie. And David said, you know, he was working on this new um, album called Lodger. And would I be interested in co-designing it with him and Duffy? So we all worked on this design uh, for this falling figure. Because David and I, I think, had one or two other things in common. Um, first of all, we were had always been interested in falling figures. My 1962 paintings, and continuously to this day, I've always been interested in the figures falling from the And why is that? It was a, really, I used it originally, it came from a William Blake painting. I used the falling figure of nakedness as a symbol of vulnerability and manipulate, manipulate the way that we in society are manipulated by both advertising and politics. So that was the falling figure, which is figure of vulnerability that was always trying to be changed. So, you know, David had, um, you know, been interested. You know, he did that great film called The Man Who Fell to Earth. Yes. Um, and also David and I, we had one other thing in common. David much more than I, but we had both studied mime. We're interested in mime. So um, we had one or two interests. Um before this phone call from Duffy and before I met David, um, 
I had a I was went to a bookshop in Covent Garden in London, and the book owner the owner of the bookshop said to me, "Oh, do you know David Bowie?" And I said, "Well, I know who he is. I don't know him personally at that time." And he said, "Well, he's been in asking if there's any catalogs and books on you." And I thought, "Oh, that was strange." So then a few weeks later, you know, I, I got to meet him, and um, we collaborated and made that. Um, particular but from that time on I've done a lot of work with David Bowie I um I've done portraits of him I did a portrait that he owns of him I did a portrait of him as the elephant man you might you might recall that off off Broadway uh, yes. David um, did this um, uh, um John Merrick has uh, played the role of Merrick the uh, elephant man I did several portraits of him as the elephant man um, when I was in, I did this in the summer of 1980. When I was in New York, I'd rented a, rented a loft for the summer, and David called me up and he said, "Oh, you still want to do that portrait?" I said, "Oh yeah." He said, "Well, I'm in town, you know." I said, "Oh, I know. I've been reading. You've been doing Elephant Man." And he turned up at my studio. I had a, a cameras prepared for when he was visiting, and it was about a you know three foot square canvas. And I was just going to do a portrait of his head. But when he appeared, he turned up in my loft on the, on the Bowery. And um, he had these bright, bright red trousers and a white shirt and white socks. By chance, it was, by the way, it was August in New York. And the air, con- air conditioning just broken down that, ah. that and it was terrible, you know. Right. David, I, I apologized to David, and he said, well, do you, wanna, uh, do you mind if I take my shirt off? I said, because he had this freshly, beautiful, freshly laundered white shirt, which obviously he was using for the rest of the day, going on somewhere else. And um, so he said no, and then he had his white shoes on, and he um, took his shoes off, and so he stood there with his red trousers on, bare-breasted, as it were, and I thought, and then I talked to him, and I said, you know, still thinking I'd do a head. I said, oh, how's the elephant man coming? How's the rehearsals? And he said, oh, it's great. He said, except, he said, I have to stand sometimes as much as nearly five minutes at a time. And he went into this pose, you know, he pushed his arm right down to below his knee, and he bent his other arm, and he distorted his face. He said, I have to, I have to distort my face. And I said, oh, and that was perfect. I thought, I'm not going to paint David Bowie the glamorous thing. I'm going to paint David Bowie as the elephant man um, for several reasons. One, he first of all he was playing on stage one uh, the, one of the most deformed people we know of in history. Secondly, he just released an album called Scary Monsters. So I thought in keeping with all those sort of things, and plus there's a very famous a painting by Manet called The Pfeiffer. It's a young boy with a flute, and he's got bright red trousers, and he was in this pose. And so all of a sudden, within seconds, everything came together. So that's how I did him as the elephant man. Is that, in that, is that painting in the show right now, the Victoria and Albert? No, what's in the Victorian Albert? I have one work in that, but that's one of... I also did other things. Apart from designing the record cover for David, I'd also painted him several times, and also from life or invented too. Plus, he asked me at one stage to design some stage sets 
for his Moonlight tour, which I did, which was not used, actually. But I, I have the models. I, I made several um, cardboard models uh, for stage sets. I mean, they, they measure about, you know, two foot by 10 inches by six inches. And they're made of cardboard. And I, 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 I still had two left last year. And, um, and they, they were exhibited in this show that we mentioned earlier called David Bowie and the Clash that I did in the museum in Holland House in London, in, in England. So the Victorian Albert bought it, bought the, the sets from there. And um, one of the sets are in the exhibition. I have another set in my home, in my studio here. So tell me, what uh, what brought you to L.A.? Uh, what brought me to L.A.? I, I was asked to teach at CalArts. Uh, you know CalArts here? Yes, of course, yeah. Important art school, of course. Yeah, it's a great yeah. art college. And I was asked to come here first for a semester, and then they said, look, it makes more sense to come for a, a year to teach to two semesters for the continuity of the students. So I said, fine. So I was married at the time, and my wife and I and two children came, and um, I did one year, and they said, Callot said, you want to do another year? And by that time, my wife had got a very good job, actually also working in Callot, and so we decided to make Los Angeles our base. And in fact, um, although divorced, my children live here. My oldest daughter lives in San Francisco, and my youngest lives in L.A., my two lovely daughters. So, um, anyway, the thing, I wanted to go a little bit more into detail about the specific exhibitions that are up now. Sure. The shows. Talk about the individual paintings in this current show at Flowers Gallery. Well, they all, um, although they've got an umbrella title, um, um, they are, which, which sort of tends to signify sort of popular culture, um, one painting that um, I'm particularly interested in that's in the New York show um, is called um, No Ed, the Los Angeles County Museum is Not on Fire. It's an Ed Richet painting right. that Ed Richet completed in 1968. Yes. And it's a painting called The Los Angeles County Museum is on Fire. Right. And what it is, it's a typical Ed Richet painting it's it's a straightforward depiction of the Los Angeles County Museum um, from a sort of slightly aerial perspective. And at the back, there's some flames coming out. So, in fact, yes, it is on fire. But, of course, being Ed Richet, it's a wordplay. What it's saying is, yeah, wow, you know, the Los Angeles County is very hip. It's really on fire. You know, it's really going well, you know, right? Being an Ed Richet wordplay thing. Right. So I took that and... Um, I thought about it for a long time. I'd seen the painting and always liked the painting and always liked what he did with it. So I thought for years I might do a piece connected with that. And then it so happened that about five years ago now, I think it's about five years ago, there was an exhibition at LACMA, the Los Angeles County Museum, called Magritte and Contemporary Art. And it was all about, it was a show of, of Magritte's paintings, but also a, a series of artists who'd been influenced or, or curators thought might have been influenced by Magritte's paintings. And outside of the exhibition at that time was a huge banner 
I don't know what it must be. It must have been in a 20-foot, 30-foot square. And it was a big image of the famous um, Magritte pipe, Magritte's pipe. So I did this painting, um, as I say, called Noed, the Los Angeles County Museum is not on fire. And I repeated this aerial view of the, of the uh, Los Angeles County Museum, but this time it was also included in the extension. And I included works of Magritte in it, the works of Ed Rocher in it. But I made that particular pipe of his on fire rather than the building. So that's why the, the painting is called No Ed, the Los Angeles County Museum is not on fire because it's not on fire. Los, um, Magritte's pipe is on fire if you look at the painting. Uh, it seems like you're using iconography of, is it um, iPhones? Tell me about that subject, you know, the way that you're using that. You know, what, what was your reference there? Well, just as in my paintings all of my career, really, I've used images from public culture. The most famous product I used uh, in my 1962 pop art paintings were toothbrushes and toothpaste. That's the um, one of the projects I used, but I've used all sorts of uh, products and things from popular culture in my work over over a period. Because it's also um, the way that people gather information now. They take pictures. Everybody's taking well, pictures on the, on the iPhone. Well, exactly. This is the reason I used it, because, you know, this is the modern, this is the great visual uh, means of communication of the day, and I, I've always been interested in doing things of the day. My work has always come out of newspapers, magazines, television, and current events. It's it's always been like that. I've done stuff about the Iraq War. I've done stuff about various countries. I've done projects about Israel. I've done projects about um, um, Prague and during the Dubček Spring, which I could talk about if you like. Why don't you tell me? Uh, yes, let's talk a little bit about that. Let's just uh, talk a little bit about your political, you know, the, the Iraq War and the and the. And can you describe those projects? Um, so when the Iraq War started, I went to the 99 cent store and I was absolutely appalled at what they, they were just swamped. The children's section was swamped with plastic and military toys. I couldn't get over it. I mean, they were, they made, you know, a 10 times larger display because of the war and with that, you know, that fool and idiot Bush. So, I thought, my God, I've got to do something about this. And this ties in with me wanting to do something with the 1990 war. Because it's very strange just to sort of come off the track slightly. You know, when I teach sometimes, um, sometimes I talk to students and say, you know, sometimes I'll get an idea for an artwork and I won't use it for 10 years. You know, and for a student, that's a lot, you know, a student's life. Uh, it's more than the life of a student, but you know sometimes you you know you hold this vocabulary of ideas, and sometimes you know there comes an opportunity where it can be used, and this was the case with the 1990 war. So um, I bought about ten dollars worth of toys. I bought a hundred toys, or over a hundred. Uh, you, you can buy you know packs of forty. I mean, I bought hundreds of toys. And I, anyway, the point about it, I, I did this piece about the Iraq war using um, um, only objects from the 1990 cent war. I did it as an installation. Where, where did you sh show this installation? 
I've shown that installation several times, actually many times. I've shown it, the first time I showed it, I showed it way back in, I think, 04 or 03. I showed it in Austin, Texas, of all places, and it so happened an alternative space asked me to do a show, and I was just about working on it at the time. So that was the first. I've also shown it in London, and I've shown it in Paris. So it's been shown several times. Um, as an installation and at the moment sorry not at the moment because it's just finished I showed the drawing part of it the 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 installation consists of a table and chairs and a pile of toys plus three nine-foot-long drawings and they were up until three weeks ago two weeks ago we we're in a show in London just of the drawings it, the, the project is a combination of children and military hardware, basically, because of the, the, the statistics of how many people have been killed in the Iraq war are still terrifying, terrifying. Yes. Civilians, yes. of course. Yes. What's called collateral damage, i.e. killing people. Right, <laughs> killing exactly. innocent people. No. More, more George Ordwell speak. Um, well, I'm working on, on several books at the moment. I'm doing making some books. The, the, the Getty recently bought one of my handmade books because I've been doing a lot of books. Uh, the other thing I'm working on at the moment is, um, you know, I've, I've had somewhat of a revival of my, my films. Um, I made films in the late 60s, early 70s. And, and I'm now being called experimental filmmaker after these paintings of these films have been dormant for 20 years. And where are they showing? Um, well, um, they have been showing. For instance, the British Film Institute last June did an evening of my films. Um, in London last month at the Chelsea Arts Club, I did an evening of my films. And there was a discussion afterwards with someone called Will Fowler who is curator of archives at the British Film Institute. Um, so, you know, my work can be seen on... One of my films, by the way, can be seen on my website. Um, if you go to my website, um, DerekBosher.com, on the home page, quite large, it says, click on here to see film. And one of my films from 73, which is just five minutes long, is on there. And currently, I'm making, a, I'm making a movie again on my iPad. I'm shooting a movie on my iPad. It's in about July. So I, I, was on, I was looking you up online, and I saw a, 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 that you were doing an interview with you where you're talking about class and um, art. You know, basically, when you were starting out, that, that, that there was a... You talk about how the middle class was absent, but but it was like the, the punk came out of the lower class mixed with the upper class. I don't re recall that conversation, but certainly the the art and the music of the '60s came out of working class people. You know, they, um, half of them went to art college. You know, like John Lennon and uh, and um, you know all the people from the Animals and um, Brian Ferry and so can uh, you talk about I mean the whole idea of I mean this explosion in Britain that you were a part of at the time. Well, as I say, um, what I started off in this interview by saying I was at the right place at the right time. I was just happened to be a contributor to that change, 
as I said, it came out of the dull 50s. Um, you know, after the war in Britain, there were lots of things going on other than the art world. John Osborne, the British playwright, wrote a famous play called Look Back in Anger. And it was about the relationship of an upper-class English girl with a working-class boy. And this broke a lot of ground. There was a, a Jewish playwright called Arnold Westler, who wrote a play called The Kitchen, which is always what happens at the back of restaurants. Uh, there was a lot of satirical reviews going on. There was, a, there was a sense of change in the air. My pop paintings were influenced by the reading of certain books. Like which ones? For instance, well, the, re the books that affected and made me produce those paintings were books by um, one book from Vance Packard's called The Hidden Persuaders, Daniel Borstein's The Image, and anything by Marshall McLuhan. Those turned me on. I came, I came to see the manipulation of people through advertising via politics. I was in the 50s. I was involved in um, March, the anti-nuclear march in, in, in Britain. There was huge demonstrations in the 50s trying to ban nuclear weapons. And a lot of young people, and I was in the army at the time, actually. I served two years in the British Army as a conscript. I had no choice. So during that time, I, I went, I used to go on what, we, what was called band bomb marches from, from Aldermaston, where the nuclear, British nuclear um, center was, to, to London. Bertram Russell, the philosopher, was involved. But a lot of young people were involved in that. My interest in politics morphed into my interest in how um, society is manipulated through advertising. Yes. So, Derek, thank you so much. I think we have a wonderful interview, and I really appreciate you, do, you taking the time to talk to us. Great.